This is episode two of the Alslax podcast. My guest today is Scott Hambrick, founder of Online Great Books, Bitcoin Hodler, and a man of many thoughts. But before we get started, a word from our sponsor. Yes, the Alslax podcast has its first sponsor, a man by the name of Matt O'Dell. I have principles, but sometimes Satoshis are the best principle, so here goes nothing. This episode is sponsored by the Tales from the Crypt podcast in honor of Owls Lacrosse. Owls provides impactful mentorship and access to scholarships for underserved youth in Chicago. Learn more at owlslacrosse.org or follow them on Twitter at at Owlslax. That's Owls Lacrosse. And now, without further ado, Mr. Scott Hambrick. Welcome to episode two of the Auslax podcast. My guest today is Scott Hambrick. Scott is the founder of Online Great Books and is also a Bitcoiner, I found out. Um, so we're going to talk about that a little bit and the intersection of those two things. But Scott, if you wanted to introduce yourself, you can start off with that. Ugh, gross. <laughs> The people want to know. They're crying out for information. Well, I own onlinegreatbooks.com where we are essentially running an adult education. I don't know. What is it? You remember there, a liberal arts uh, program. We yeah. have, uh, we have a, I don't know, like a thousand people or so reading uh, the, the great books. You know, Aristotle, Plato, um, Homer, et cetera. And then each month uh, we, we run a Socratic seminar where uh, where these regular folks, electricians and nurses and uh, homeschool moms and Bitcoin nerds, uh, get in there and talk about these big ideas, and we try to we're trying to fill in some of the blanks that uh, that modern education leaves. Unfortunately, yeah, it's I kind of take it for granted now um, because I've been a member of it for a little over a year or so, but it is kind of an unusual project you don't see a lot of anything like that right now Uh, what were what were the steps that led you to doing this on a professional level or whatever you want to call it man you just said it was professional yeah Um, well we we were sending our kids to the snotty uh private prep school here in, in in my hometown and i was i was not real pleased with with education they were getting there and we decided wife and I decided we were going to homeschool them and when I was researching how to homeschool them I realized that I had some serious holes in my education I'm you know kind of a stem guy microbiology chemistry education and I yeah so I didn't get a lot of this liberal arts stuff you know the classical liberal arts grammar logic rhetoric I didn't get that so I thought man if you know we're going to homeschool these kids uh, I need to fill in those holes for myself. So I started trying to find out, well, what's the best way for a busy person, a busy adult person to do that? Because I didn't want to go and, well, I wanted to half-ass it, frankly. I wanted the 80-20 thing, right? I wanted to do 20% of the work and get 80% of the good out of it. I didn't want to be learning how to conjugate uh, Latin verbs and stuff. Yeah, as well, it's good work old, if you can get it. Right. Maximum result for minimal effort. Yeah, so I, I found the, the Great Books program that, Warner Adler espoused, you know, from, I don't know, around 1940 till his death, you know, and uh, started a group at my home. And there's about seven to 10 guys show up at my house on the third Thursday every month for almost seven years now. 
and had been working through this program themselves. And one of the guys was Brett McKay of Art of Manliness. Yeah. And, and that was how group. I eventually discovered you. Yeah. And Brett's like, man, this is so good. This home group's so good. You, you need to do this online. And uh, I, I was at, at that time, I was a co host of the Barbell Logic podcast, mm-hmm. uh, which was a, a pretty good sized show. And I promoted this online program on there, kicked the thing off January of 2018 and <clears throat> filled. I don't know, five seminars or something instantly. And we have just uh, added and added and added since. And we've got, like I said, we've got, we're the size of a, I don't know, a medium size uh, liberal arts college at this point. We've got hundreds and hundreds of people wow. uh, do it, do it, doing this stuff um, the, the great books way. And it's uh, pretty, pretty darn rewarding. Yeah. That's how it got started. Yeah. One of the things that I, I run into when I'm, when I'm doing my reading of that is this sense that um, we've lost something by not including that in our curriculum, or at least to the degree to which it should be. Um, And you get that in Bitcoin a lot too, this concept of by, you know, we use the word fiat a lot, um, whether it's fiat economics, fiat food, fiat design, fiat art, uh, it's become a shorthand for sort of the, um, the quick and dirty mass produced cheap inversion of the culture. And there's such a sense of that when, when I'm reading uh, a lot of the ancient works, it's like, God, we've really, really lost. You, you read, you know, people who were uh, 14 year old, 14 years old, 300 years ago, and they, they knew their Latin, they knew their Aristotle that in, and we just don't have that anymore. Um, yeah. And obviously the human brain can handle it at that age because we used to do it all the time. So, you know, something obviously happened there. Something, something went wrong. Um, I want to yep. come back to that in a few minutes, but real quick, I was <laughs> not aware until recently that you were a Bitcoiner. Um, but on your, own, uh, on your own podcast, you just recently did an episode discussing the white paper and talked about Satoshi a little bit. But uh, how did you get into Bitcoin? Oh, God. I'm not sure I remember. Um, I, I got to back up just a little bit. You said, you don't know, you're not sure what happened with the education thing. I don't think anything mm-hmm. happened. I think something was done to us. We can come back to that later if you want. I think we've been screwed uh, mm-hmm. on purpose. But uh, the Bitcoin thing, I don't know, man. Um, I have held Bitcoin and used it for, I don't know, man, six years? Mm-hmm. Six years. It was trading in the, like the $200 area when I got started. I don't even know what, what you, that could help somebody you know, pinpoint what time that was. Yeah, um, that would have been about right. And I was just seeing on the internet, you know, people talking about it and I uh, went and studied up on it. And I thought, man, you know, if I can trade with it, I mean, if I can actually do some business with it, what the hell's wrong with that? That sounds good. Mm-hmm. You know, transaction fees are very, very low. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's private. We don't have to mess with a stupid bank, you know, all the stuff. And, um, than just knowing what I know about money and being uh, interested in personal finance and macroeconomics. I was like, I'm not big on being a speculator in anything, Mm -hmm. uh, but since the thing had utility for me instantly, and I still, I still think this way, the fact that it's either going to go to zero or it's going to hockey stick and make all the difference in the world. uh, Yeah. I got, I got to participate in this and, uh, and, well, so I have for however the heck long that has been. <laughs> when was it trading in the two hundred dollar area? I'd have to look it up, but I, I think 
probably, oh, if memory serves, probably around the end of 2016 or so. Um, I think it's been longer than that for me. Yeah. So, it, well, it may have been and, and then gone up and then got back down to that because, it, you know, there there is like a cyclical volatility there. Um, but that was roughly what it was when I got into, I think. Yeah. Or when I did not get in enough. Right. Well, you know, it's like, it's like weight training. Everybody that does weight training says they should have started earlier. Everybody that's in Bitcoin wishes they got started earlier. It's fine. Yeah. Well, let, let's back up on that too, because I, uh, most people listening to this may not be aware of your connection to weight training. Yeah. Uh, gosh, I'm a strength coach. Uh, I was a starting strength coach. I have not maintained in that certification anymore and i work at barbell logic which that's where i was the co-host for the podcast for about three years i got too darn busy and kind of stepped away from that uh but but there you go i'm a barbell coach so i help normal people get very very strong uh do it in person and also do it online at barbell logic online coaching and uh, well i love that method we use that novice linear progression method for our new clients where uh, Every time they go into the gym, an untrained novice can put more weight on the barbell, can get stronger, can demonstrate greater and greater strength. And they can do that. A normal person can do that for several, several weeks. And um, we, I've, we end up scaffolding. You know, you go in, you squat 135 pounds. The next time you go in, you squat 140. And uh, you recover from that. You adapt and you come back in and you're stronger the next week. And uh, we call that the novice linear progression. And I love that method. I love the form that we teach with the low bar squat and, and so on. And, uh, and every time we help somebody, they get much, much stronger. And uh, we have actually, when we started the online great books business, we started, started it by calling it um, intellectual linear progression. Yeah. I remember that. We started because we started at the very beginning. And we build and scaffold in a logical way. You know, most of the time, if you go take classes on any of these books at any sort of school, they're going to do kind of a, what Adler would call a syntopical reading. You're going to read a bunch of stuff about <clears throat> justice, for example. So you might read a little Plato. You might little, read a little Aristotle. You might read a little Thomas Hobbes. You might read a little John Locke, and so on. And when you do that and kind of jump around in the chronology it's much more difficult than if you start at the very beginning with Homer and then build from there. So by the time we read Plato, we've read Homer, we've read Aeschylus, we've read um, Euripides, we've read Sophocles, we've read Aristophanes. So we've read a lot of the stuff that Plato himself would have known when he was writing. So we at least, I mean, when you get, when we get to Plato, we're certainly not equal to him, but we've got, at least a lot more context and a lot more, we share a lot of the same fund of knowledge that he would have had. It makes it a lot easier to read that stuff. So, um, you know, that careful scaffolding and that thoughtful building on previous accomplishment that we do in the barbell training influence the way we do the online great books reading. Yeah. You have those same presuppositions built in when, yep. when you get there, that was always, God, I, I remember when I was in, in high school, it was painful to watch guys who were, trying to get stronger and they always wanted to kind of jump up to that next weight before they were able to do it. And they'd spend month after month after month, never progressing because they could never, they never worked on getting it right at that lower weight. They just wanted to 
you know, when you're 15, you want to show off, you want you want everybody to see how strong you are. They wanted to have that next level weight on the bar and they could sure do it with uh, two spotters helping them out, but they right. never could get it right. Um, and it, there was just no pro- progression at all because it was like they wanted to skip, skip the necessary steps or the order of operations on that. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, with the barbell training, even slow is really fast. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, you know, you, when you're doing the LP, even if you add one pound to, to every time you go into squat, you know, we're going to squat 156 sessions in a year. You're going to put 156 pounds on your squat. There aren't very many people to do that, and that's about the slowest, worst case scenario possible. Mm-hmm. I'll have untrained, untrained men. It's nothing for us to put 200 pounds on our squat in eight weeks. Uh, for the untrained guy. And uh, yeah, it just works. So you just be patient and by and by you end up enormously stronger. Mm. Once you get through that great first period, it's a little bit of a psychological challenge when you realize, oh, I'm not going to keep going up 20 pounds a week forever. Yeah. The the closer you get to your genetic potential, you know, the slower and slower those gains in strength and force production get come. You know, the muscle, the force production, like moving a barbell is your ability to place, to uh, uh, put force against that barbell and overcome gravity, you know, and get it to lock out. And that force production is directly related to the cross-sectional size of your muscle fibers. So your muscles have got to get bigger. And for any person, they have a genetic potential to put on X amount of muscle mass. Unless they take drugs. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, uh, but nobody does that. Nobody does that. At the elite level, they're all clean. No, I tell you what, if you go to an amateur meet in your town, 80% of the people are on drugs. Yeah. Amateur meet. But um, the closer you get to your genetic potential, the slower and slower that muscle protein synthesis is. Uh, it, it takes place. And, um, and the more work, the more tonnage you have to move on the barbell. So it, it, gets, it gets harder and harder, but it's worth doing. And, um, and, you know, we, we pursue that and we, and we pursue these books, you know, doing it the way we do it at online great books takes a long time, mm-hmm. takes a long time, but it's thorough and it's transformative. When, when people do the novice linear progression under the barbell, six weeks later, everybody around them knows that they're different. Their yeah. bodies are different. They're stronger than they've ever been in their whole life. And the online great books program is the same way, except it takes, it takes six months. Yeah. Uh, and then, and then even people, um, people that don't know you're doing that program will notice something different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I've just started with, um, Aristotle, um, Nicomachean ethics and even that, you know, it, it's weird. And I'm not just trying to say this as an analogy, but in a way it is a muscle that you have to exercise. When I first started reading it, it was, it was a chore. And even now, you know, it's, I go over, a lot of paragraphs two or three times. Um, but I've noticed as I, as I go on, it's, it's like my brain is adapting to it and I am picking things up better on that first pass. Um, and I, I really, at this point in my life, I didn't really expect that that would happen. You know, you, you think that's normal when you're a kid and learning to read better or a student of something where you're new years and years ago. But, but now I just figure like, well, however hard it's going to be, that's how hard it's going to be, but it actually is getting easier as, as I go along with it. Um, so it's cool to see that, um, there is that comparison there where you, you make that muscle or that neurological connection, whatever you want to call it, you make it stronger. There's a lot happening there. 
when we read. Mm. There's actually a physical aspect to it. Like our eyes can get fatigued, the, mo- the muscles around the eyeball that hold that, that lets you track, you know, from left to right when you read. Yeah. All, all that stuff needs to be trained because we get tired when we read. Mm. Um, our attention spans are shattered by our stupid phones and stupid TV and, <laughs> and everything else we do. So it takes a long time to, um, to, to lengthen the attention span. And then, and then uh, as we do this, we do it more and more. We have a bigger fund of knowledge, a greater context to put all the work in. So when you read something, well, if you've read 100 books, your 101st book is going to be easier and you're going to have a more complete experience of that because you have 100 books and 100 you know, other contexts to put that thing inside of. And if you've read 1,000, it's even easier because you can uh, – it's not just the context, but you, you're, you find that in your mind, you actually cross-reference these ideas and compare them to the other things you've read, which makes it easier for you to recall them later because, mm-hmm. you can, because you don't just file it as a new idea that's entirely raw. You can file it away in your mind as something in juxtaposition of something else yeah. or uh, as an extension of something else. Oh, it's like Hume, but this in addition. For, mm-hmm. you know, um, so the more we do it, the easier and easier it gets. Yeah. Until you get Alzheimer's and die. Yeah. Well, hopefully that's a long way off for most of us. My, uh, my 23 and me test says, uh, says I'm not likely. So knock on wood on that one. A lot of big yeah. corners are going to get angry right now to find out I did 23 and me, but I know I was already mad. Yeah. Yeah. I, I swear I did it back before I considered all this stuff. Yeah. It's, it's probably not a good idea, but at the same time, if somebody wants to get a hold of my DNA, they can brush up against me in the supermarket and probably get right. some if, if the CIA is after me. Um, but yeah, you know, it, it reminds me almost of the way that a, uh, that a television works where you have that, well, I don't know about now, but the old fashioned TVs, um, you had an electron beam that just scans line after line after line, but it's, it's only rewriting the things that are different from frame to frame. It's not rewriting the entire frame. Um, so, you know, uh, when you initially turn it on, it has to build the whole image. But then after that, it's only building the things that from moment to moment are changing in the image. Um, and when you've got all those concepts in your brain to kind of hang things on, you know, it's, you're not starting from scratch. There is that relational aspect to it. So um, it doesn't make it easier. Yeah. When we start our program, everybody has trouble. Everybody has trouble with the readings. Uh, and it's, it's not the reading's fault. Yeah, you know, <laughs> when, when when we're taught in school, they teach us to skim and scan. We're we're, we're really reading for time because you know you have a pop quiz on Friday, you know you've got a test at the midterm, um, and we're reading textbooks, which are horrible books. And any anybody that's serious about learning anything doesn't go buy a textbook. They, you don't do that. That's not where people go to learn. That's yeah. that's entire. That's a business that just cropped up to sell books to states to put in front of kids. So the the, the the way we're taught to read is not the best way. So we have to remediate everybody that can, almost everybody that comes in the program. And we learned this, we learned this lesson from my home group. So we start everybody with this book called how to read a book by Mortimer J. Adler. And Adler talks about there are four kinds of reading. There's a very elementary kind of skim and scan kind of reading and then a more inspectional thing. And then, and then all the way up to what he calls a syntopical reading. And when you read, when you do that syntopical reading, that's, that's what we're talking about, man. That's where we're comparing what we read to everything else we know. We can take this new thing we read, 
in comparison with this other older thing we read, plus our experience, and maybe synthesize an entirely new idea out of it. And um, the, more, the more you've read, the more, the more likely it is you're going to get one of those results. And when you do, it's, it's, it's a wonderful experience, really. Yeah. And, Some uh, of it is habituating yourself to, to um, the conventions of the age, I would say. Um, obviously, with Homer, you know, you're reading something that's, that's epic poetry. Um, so it's not written as, as a 21st century novel would be written. Um, but God, it always kills me with Homer and with Plutarch. I've found the, uh, the constant listing of names is so hard to get through sometimes. Um, even if you're not trying to remember each detailed name, but, um, who's that? I think it was, um, when Plutarch wrote about, uh, my pronouncing it right. Numa Pompilius, mm-hmm. uh, first, first, uh, King of Rome. I counted in the first one or two sentences of, of his bio of him, probably 11 people were named. Um, right. Everything is like son of this, who was married to the cousin of his. And it's just at some point you're like, can we get to the point of this? It's just name after name. But I, I understand, you know, when things, especially with Homer, when things are being presented in its original form, that was part of how it was remembered. And you had that meter and it was repeated over and over and over again. And, you know, yeah, it's just uh, just like those those horrible begats in the Bible. Yeah, yeah. These are people that are either like Homer in an oral tradition, or not too far out of it. You know, so they're reciting these things over and over and over again. They're transmitting culture to the to the, their peers. Mm-hmm. You, know, you know, here are the important people. Here's where they came from. Here's where the roots are. You know, this is your culture. This is your society. This is where it comes from. And they tie it directly to the people involved. Uh, whereas now it's all individualism mm-hmm. who's henry ford's dad if i yeah. can find out <laughs> henry ford senior i don't know yeah i but it also was um it was serving as you know this was pre encyclopedia britannica it was like all of the information about these people had to be included in in the story about them um right. which can make it pretty tedious sometimes in some of these things but but that's how we know anything about a lot of these people is because of this. So the, the poem about them is telling you who their third cousin is and it seems irrelevant, but that's the only record that we have. So, you know, there, there was a purpose. Um, so I was saying earlier, I didn't realize until recently that you were in a Bitcoin. I don't know how far down the rabbit hole you've fallen in terms of Bitcoin culture. Um, I, I have to say, I was, I was pretty impressed. Your technical knowledge is pretty good um, for, for someone who is not a, like known as a Bitcoiner per se. Uh, when I listened to uh, when you when you guys were talking about the white paper, you have a you have a good handle on that. And uh, I mentioned to uh, I don't know if you know who Guy Swan is. He has Bitcoin Audible podcast. He does um, it's almost like um, like an audiobook version of he'll read essays on Bitcoin. Um, but he was saying Carl's uh, theory about Neil Stevenson was was good for a beginner. Um, it's, <laughs> it's not correct, but it was a, it was a good, uh, it was a good theory for a beginner. Definitely. Has he been, has he been doc? Satoshi been docs? No, no. Um, so I'll, I'll give you two answers as to Satoshi is the, the real true blue Bitcoiner answer is it doesn't matter. Um, right. in a lot of ways, um, the most likely answer, it's probably Hal Finney, um, who is dead. Um, he died of ALS um, some years ago, um, which is probably why you, you're always going to have this really uh, sort of immaculate conception of Bitcoin 
No one will know for sure. No one's ever going to move Satoshi's coins. There have been a lot of pretenders who come forth and say that they were Satoshi, but they've never been able to produce the private keys. Um, all they have to do is sign a transaction and they can prove they're Satoshi. They never can do that. Um, there's one particular guy, very infamous, who keeps uh, losing court cases. Um, he's been caught faking evidence before, um, but he's got this super rich backer um, and they just keep challenging anybody who calls him a fraud and it's, it's a whole mess. But they, the important thing is that it doesn't matter who Satoshi is. Um, it, it is fascinating though to imagine who it could be, but it's, it's yeah, a good it, thing. I think that we'll never know. Yeah. It, it doesn't matter. And uh, I hate all that drama. I hate all that crap. Yeah. It misses the point to, to overly obsess about it. Um, the only thing that I I'm interested in is if they can give, um, if they can give a Nobel to a pseudonym, um, because I, I'm definitely, uh, of the opinion that Satoshi should get the Nobel for economics. It's oh, the it, most important. Except Krugman got one. So it's well, really a yeah. organization. And, and, and if, if you did, if they do give it to him, we need to sell all of our coins. Yeah, I, I I should put it this way. I, I would like him to get a Nobel, but at the same time, I, I definitely have my own feelings on the committee too. I mean, Pulitzer, same thing. We've had a couple of really disgraceful Pulitzer given out, one pretty recently. Um, we'll get into a little bit of that in a few minutes, the, the controversial portion of uh, of this broadcast. Um, but um, so what, the, what's that? Kregman? Is that the part where we shit on Kregman? Oh, well, feel free. He's... Uh, you mean the uh, you're not a big fan of the guy who announced in 1998 that uh, the fax or the uh, internet would be no more important than the fax machine by 2005? That that genius. Well, you know, he never claimed to know anything about the internet or fax yeah. machines, so I'll cut him some slack on that. But this whole thing that the national debt is money we owe ourselves, so it doesn't matter. Yeah, he doubles down on that about twice a week on Twitter. Yeah, puts. Uh, foolish articles in the new york times about it all the time it there's no way that that's correct uh, metaphysically it's insane uh the guy is either a liar and pure evil or an idiot and he might be both yeah might be <laughs> i don't know that he's an idiot in terms of see this is where you get to fiat culture um he's good at, at playing the game of the system um, sure. He obviously was brilliant at doing his homework and reading his textbooks, but where, where it starts to fall apart, I think, is you see a lot of people who are really good within, uh, within their own framework, but the framework is very faulty. Um, they don't think systemically, they don't think of the bigger picture, and you basically have a lot of people in a little glass jar telling each other how brilliant they are, but nobody's looking outside the glass jar to see what's really going on in the real world. Um, and that's how I see a lot of people like him. Although I don't know that I should give him the benefit of the doubt as far as the guy's got to have read about the Weimar Republic. He's got to oh, be looking at Venezuela. I mean, the guy has got to have bought a house at some point. Like, how do you borrow money for yourself? And it doesn't matter. Like, yeah. what is he even talking about? Does he not know that, that foreign governments and foreign nationals hold our debt? Like, it's not even money we owe ourselves. Like we owe people who are not citizens of the United States. And yeah. like you, you don't even have to get up in your head and study you know, MMT, you know, modern uh, monetary theory to, 
to go down the hole with him and to hold hands with him. Like it's, it's wrong from the start. And he is either an idiot or he knows it's wrong and he's evil. Yeah. That that's where I, uh, you know, it's really infuriating when it's like, what, what's in it for you to lie about this? Does it, does it make your friends oh, what happy? Do you think? They gave him the fucking prize, which yeah. has tons of money attached to it. He's got a column in the, he took the ticket. Yeah. He doesn't even know he took the ticket because he's so stupid. If he ever listens to this show, he'll think, oh, this, this hillbilly in Tulsa, Oklahoma doesn't know what he's talking about. And he's just, he's just confused by all these things that I know. And if only he knew. No, the guy is so goddamn stupid. He doesn't know that the system mafia system that runs this whole monetary game in the on the globe selected him for his compliance and his willingness to believe what authorities tell him and then elevated him to that position and they've rewarded him at every step along the way and he took the ticket and he's too fucking dumb to know he took the ticket but he's a useful mouthpiece for them yep. yeah yep, he does are you uh, have you read um this is right up your alley or, i would or the love author. to challenge him to a duel i would love to just <laughs> Like, uh, just, you know, not to the death, but just where I have to just make him just submit and just yeah. admit he's an idiot. Like well, the weapon would be, the weapon would be an orange and a tube sock. <laughs> you know, I don't want him dead. I just want him humiliated. Or you could go like a uh, full metal jacket, do a bar of soap wrapped up in a, uh, in a washcloth. Yeah. That leaves marks. Yeah. <laughs> what was in, uh, in the princess bride when he talks about to, not to the death, it would be to the pain. And he talks pain. about cutting off your ears and your lips and people will say, dear God, what is that creature when they walk by you? Yeah, that'd be nice. Have you, uh, I, I was just saying this cause you and he have a lot in common attitudinally. Um, the, uh, the Bitcoin standard by safety Namos. Have you read that book yet? No, I'll have to send you that link. I'm absolutely completely divorced from the whole Bitcoin community. Okay. Uh, I'll send you that book then because you and he would uh, would hit it off really well. Um, so this is a guy who has a PhD in econ from Columbia University, and that's going to make you hate him until you start reading his writings and you're going to go, oh my God, I love this guy. Um, he speaks of Krugman much in the same way you do. Um, and it's, it's very interesting to see him when he speaks uh, publicly, not hold back. Um, you know, he'll go to, uh, to address the, the crowd at Davos and he's PhD economist. He's there in a suit and tie. And then he starts talking like you and you're like, Oh my God, <laughs> this guy's, this guy's not holding back. Um, but, uh, yeah, you, you would, uh, get along with him. Well, he actually has a, uh, he has an online university now for economics. Um, he was a professor at, uh, oh, he's up in Canada. I can't remember where, but he left that position. Um, University of Toronto, is he? No, it was um, is it Windsor, the one next to Detroit. He he was there, and he left that um, to uh, to start his own online class last year. Um, and he's got so he's got the Bitcoin Standard. Um, he's got a new book coming out called the Fiat Standard, and then he has an econ textbook that's coming out as well. Um, but he um, he's really sort of the um, the patron saint economist of, of Bitcoin. Um, provides a lot of the theoretical framework for how it can replace the gold standard um, and, you know, the, the central banking effects of Bitcoin, but he's, he's also very big into uh, meat eating. He loves, loves steak. Um, he's actually done a lecture on, uh, 
on how going off the gold standard and, and getting into a fiat system and subsidizing corn, we got all of what he calls fiat food, where it was just a lot of uh, soy and wheat sludge held together with uh, corn syrup. It was like 99% of the food in the store. It's like a hundred different boxes, but it's all really just the same thing. But yeah, he, he'd be a guy that you'd be interested in. But um, so in Bitcoin culture, there's something that gets talked a lot about um, the, the term Citadel. Um, and I think some of what you're working on kind of fits into the bigger picture of that. So the, uh, the idea of a Citadel can range all the way from sort of a prepper idea where you're kind of like, like we think there's a big collapse coming of the fiat system and we're kind of hunkering down for the worst. Um, there's another version of it that is more maybe something that resembles um, the former feudal age where you've got um, little areas which are both in terms of infrastructure and maybe with militias or something like that are protecting themselves. And, you know, that is starting to look a little more realistic these days. Um, and then I would say the, uh, the nice version of it, which is kind of the one that we're, we hope for, but, you know, um, where the Citadel is more, a citadel of the mind, a citadel of the heart, where it's more about, um, you know, explaining this system to people and, and building community and taking back the educational system. A lot of Bitcoiners are into concepts of, of homeschooling. Um, and, uh, you know, they were tired of the, uh, the state system to begin with. And now with, with all that's gone on in the past six months, it's just starting to look ridiculous. Um, but I think of something like that. And, you know, I learned about the trivium from you guys. I, I wasn't aware of it um, before this. Um, but something like what you what you do there, I could see there being a renaissance on, under a, under a uh, condition like that, where you have, you know, there is some more unraveling of society, but the people who have the hard money are, are forming their own little enclaves. Um, it's, you know, in some ways it's a little bit scary, but in some ways we've been here before historically, but, yeah, there uh, is, uh, yeah, there's, there's a big, big up, upheaval coming. I mean, I think it's already, I think we've already seen quite a bit since, uh, February. Mm -hmm. This is little July 30th of 2020 right now. And, uh, yeah, I don't think we're even having a, we're not even making any predictions or any prognosticating when we say that, I mean, it's already, it's already yeah. happening. Yeah. Uh, I live near Portland, so I'm, I'm especially touchy about this issue right now because I've seen how bad it can get. Yeah. It's, no, you haven't. Not yet. Well, no, I shouldn't say that how bad it is at the moment. I shouldn't say how bad it can get. Yeah. Yeah. There, um, yeah. The whole Citadel idea. Is, uh, yeah. There are lots of folks thinking that uh, right now. And, um, that's going to have that idea is going to have huge consequences, I think, for the economy. Um, and I think we're already starting to see it. And um, yeah, I, I, I hate to make a whole bunch of predictions or anything, but uh, the next 18 months is going to be pretty wild, I think. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're not nearly out of the woods as far as economically. I mean, we've just had the first chapter. I think people think that, okay, now things are going to get back to normal and they're going to find that normal is not what they think it is anymore. But it's, it's going to be a few more months before that reality really hits everybody. So, um, 
but I, I do think that it's an opportunity. You know, I'm reading about um, even in like San Francisco, you've got parents, they're calling them homeschooling pods where, mm-hmm. you know, they're tired of not being able to send their kids back to school. So you're getting like five or six families together and they're hiring tutors. Um, and in some cases, I think these are grad students, um, say Stanford yeah. grad students or something, and they can pay them well. And it's starting to dawn on them, well, what are we paying all this money to the school system for when they can get a better education, you know, that we have more contact with, we're, we're more in control of, much more individualized attention. Um, and I think in an environment like that, it's a great opportunity to start revitalizing some of this teaching of the classics. Yeah. So uh, Carl Shute and I do the online great books podcast and the guy who engineers that show is Brett Vinat who hosts the school sucks podcast. Mm -hmm. And uh, he's a big home home education advocate. And Brett taught me a long time ago that we don't call it homeschool because we're not interested in school. School is a very strange animal. You know, it's a strange institution where they teach kids to stand in line and to move when a bell rings and sit down when another bell rings and write their name in the top right-hand corner of the paper. What we're interested in is education. And, and, I, and, and what you say is true. You know, there are all these people that are kind of dipping their toe into that because their schools were shut down in the spring. And, um, and they're starting to see that, you know, maybe they weren't getting what they thought they were going to get. Yeah. And uh, if there's anybody here that's considering taking their kids' education in their own hands, please, please, guys, don't try to replicate school at home. Oh, God. Yeah. You, 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 we, don't, we don't need that. You don't, you don't care. Now, your state, from state to state, it varies what you can do with the yeah. kids well, and, uh, and, and be able to home educate. Uh, and you certainly want to stay in trust with all of those things. But when you can, you want to do what you believe is necessary to get your kid the education they want, which means maybe you're not so interested in testing. Maybe you are. Maybe you're not interested in social studies because what the hell is that anyway? You know, let's get really pragmatic and find out what it takes to educate the kids and prepare them to uh, be adults, which is, and by the way, uh, don't be kidding yourself thinking you know what they need to know in order to be employed because um, I don't think any of us know what employment is going to look like in November of 2021, yeah. let alone when your kid hits 18. I think, uh, I think a liberal arts education and studying the classics is more important now than ever because, okay, it's my hobby horse. You've done it, Jimmy. <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, this is what you're here for. I, I, yeah, in, tw- in 2018, I sold a business that I had run for over 20 years. It's called Data Storage. We were in information and knowledge management. We did that stuff on contract for other for for big companies, and uh, and I was very interested in the information and knowledge management. As a result, duh. Uh, and you got you've probably heard of the Lindy effect. Yeah. Oh, that gets talked about nonstop in Bitcoin. So, yeah. non- right. Right. Well, that thing's true. Uh, that thing's true. I mean you know, it's always going to be a theory like Darwin's theory of evolution, but it has high, big predictive power. Uh, and, and we know, we know that in 1965, the half-life of information was about 15 years. So everything that you knew, about half of it would either be shown to be wrong or would be found irrelevant in about 15 years. Well, about 2016, it was down to about 18 months. Mm -hmm. So here's some examples. Driving a standard shift 
five-speed transmission is irrelevant at this point. There's nothing wrong about that information or that knowledge, but you could go your entire life and never depress a clutch with your left foot and put the car in first gear. It doesn't matter anymore. So that piece of knowledge has been found to be irrelevant. Or uh, .asp coding for websites. Who cares? We don't do that shit anymore. How about this? They used to tell us we had to take a baby aspirin every day and, drink, and, and take fish oil for our cholesterol. Well, not anymore. That, the science has reversed those stances. So we could go on and on and on, but the half-life of knowledge, you know, you know, how do you measure the half-life? It's kind of difficult. We have to estimate it, but there's no question that the half-life of knowledge is collapsing. If you believe that that's true, and I do, then we need to be very, very careful about what we spend time studying because there's a high probability that that thing you study right now will be completely garbage and a waste of time two years from now. Yeah. We need to be Lindy. So what are you going to study? I think you study stuff that's 3,000 years old. I think you do all of, I think you study all of Euclid. Uh, you know, I think that you study Nicomachean ethics like you are right now. I think you study the stuff that has proven the test of time because the chances are it will continue to be proven by the test of time. Uh, I'm not interested whatsoever in learning HTML5 because yeah. HTML6, 7, 8, 12, and 35 are coming, and I ain't got time for that. Mm -hmm. So what we, I think it's very important you be respectful of your kids' time and of their minds and be very careful about what you're teaching them. Uh, because like I said, so much of it will eventually not be of very much value. Yeah. Well, the, a lot of, um, education now is learning those end results without learning underlying principles. Yeah. Um, can you explain a little bit about for listeners what the trivium is? Um, uh, because I think for, you know, if someone's very into homeschooling, they might be aware of it, but for a lot of people, that's probably a foreign concept, but it is based in that idea. Yeah. So everybody's heard of liberal arts, the liberal arts, but nobody, they almost never, they, people almost never say what those are. And classically they were the first three liberal arts were grammar, logic, and rhetoric. Um, and it used to be, you studied grammar by learning Latin grammar. You learned just parts of speech, how sentences, uh, were constructed. Uh, and you did that by studying Latin because it's, it's, well, it's the best test tube to study that in, I promise. And then they studied logic by, in fact, studying logic. And typically it would have been some Aristotle's logic, his, his organon, they call it, the prior analytics, posterior analytics, the categories. Uh, and, um, and then, um, then rhetoric is when you learn to speak convincingly or beautifully about something. So that's how people studied that many, many years ago. And um, then there's, you know, then they have, uh, then we can go on and study music and astronomy and, and some other things. And, uh, uh, but I don't think that you have to study Latin, although sure wouldn't be a bad idea. Um, it sure wouldn't be a bad idea, but the way we do it, the way, uh, the way I think of, of, um, the, the trivium, the three classical liberal arts, is that when you learn the trivium, you're learning how to learn anything. And Carl Schutt has helped me understand it in this way. Uh, 
when you study grammar, you're studying the very bones of a thing. And really, language, language are the bones of how you form thoughts. If you don't have language, how do you think about abstractions? You know, a dog can probably think about a bone because it can visualize a bone. Who knows what's in the mind of a dog? But uh, just a dog can't think about justice. He doesn't have the vocabulary for it. He doesn't have the mental furniture to think about romance or justice or virtue. So when you start to, when you study grammar, you're studying the very framework that thought is built on. And if you, but when you approach a new subject, you need to learn the grammar of that subject. So if you're learning learn how to weld, you've you got to learn some basic stuff. What's a welder? What's flux? You know, what's an electrode? You've got to learn just the very basic stuff before you can do anything. And then later on, you learn the logic of the thing, the organizing principles behind the, the, the subject in front of you. And once you get those organizing principles in your mind, the next step would then be to use rhetoric. And popularly, rhetoric is just some tricky shit a politician says. But that's not what it was classically. Classically, it was when you could speak convincingly or beautifully about something. Or how about this? It's when you could teach somebody else the thing. Because when, when one teaches, two learn. Yeah, it's absolutely, and, you have to know something so much better to be able to, and you, you learn as you're teaching. Yeah, yes. Like you said. So, so when we approach a new book at Online Great Books, um, often you have to read the thing twice. You may not start at the book, the page one, and read all the way to the last page, then go back to page one and read all the way to the last page, but you're going to read most of the paragraphs two or three times yeah. if it's Aristotle. Yeah. And, and you read it the first pass just to, just to figure out what, like, what's on the page here. What are the words I don't know? Oh, I'm going to look up metaphysics. What does that word mean? I'm going to look that up, right? So you're getting the grammar of the thing. And then you're making notes as you read, and you're, you're writing down the organizing principles in the, in, the, in the text. You're writing down the arguments that Aristotle's making for his view of, of metaphysics. And then hopefully, at some point, you're able to state the unity of the thing and tell somebody else at a bar what he was talking about. And when you tell your buddy at the bar, you know, well, metaphysics is the study of being itself. And then you can describe it to him, and he goes, huh, that's interesting as hell. That's when you've got the rhetoric part. So uh, we, while we do have people who don't like great books who are studying Latin in, in ancient Greek and Euclid, you know, and they're really taking on the, the, the logic piece. And then, of course, when we go to seminar, we have to speak convincingly and beautifully about these ideas where we get the rhetoric practice. Uh, uh, we have to apply that apply that method to everything we do. And once you get that ingrained in you and you're not just studying for the multiple choice test, so you can go on and take the next test. So you can go ahead and get that piece of paper and you can get the stupid job and get the girl you want and all that. You'll find that learning everything is just so much easier. Yeah. And, um, uh, I really wish that I had had the full blown experience. Oh, absolutely. Starting at age 12 or something like that, you know, just yeah. had just immersed in that whole thing. Is that too much? I don't know. No, no I, I, you know, as, as I'm going through this now with, with online great books, I'm just like, God, I, I wish I'd had this earlier because that, that endless dance of 
you know, fill out the, the blanks on this paper and turn that in so you can get the next one, so you can get the next one. It is disheartening. If, you, if you're an earnest student, um, at some point, you've got to realize a lot of what you're doing is not about education. It's just about the system and just going through the system. And it becomes clear to some of us at a certain point that the system sort of exists to serve the system um, for its own sake. And that's what you're really doing. And I mean, I remember when I was probably 20 years old in school, there were plenty of people who would openly say to me, oh, I know that this or that major is bullshit, but it looks good on a resume. Oh, sure. It's like, how, how sad is that? That we're, you know, that's what higher education has become for so many people um, where you're, you're there and you, you think that you're wasting your time on nonsense, but you're just doing it because you know it's the next hoop to jump through it's tragic in a way when you realize what you could be doing instead. Ah, okay. <laughs> We're back to it. Uh, you know, this was done purposely mm. uh, to our education system uh, in the mid, in the mid 19th century. Um, Horace Mann, the father of American education, uh, went to Prussia and saw what they were doing in Prussia with their education system. Actually, he didn't see what they were doing. He went and school was out. And uh, he ended up speaking to educators, but he never saw from what I understand. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, he went and the school was out and never saw an operating Prussian school. And he came back and uh, got it installed, I think in New York, and then later on in his home state of Massachusetts. And then eventually it just uh, covered the country. Uh, the, Prussian, the Prussians got their ass whipped by Napoleon twice. Mm -hmm. And they did a little, uh, they did a little post engagement analysis and like what, what happened? And they found that their peasant farmers just weren't compliant enough. You know, when it was time to harvest, they'd just lay their arms down and go harvest, go back home. Uh, they were unruly. They were too individualistic and they decided that the, that the, that the, uh, longevity of the state would require, uh, more allegiance and military training, remedial military training for all the, all the citizens. So they installed the Prussian schooling system. And you guys have all seen it. In the United States, they, blow, they uh, ring a bell and you stand up and you, look, and you go between classes. They ring another bell, you sit down. It's not much different than uh, somebody blowing a whistle in the military. Classes are platoon-sized. And we, we could go on and on. You know, a lot of people here in the United States say that school was about getting people ready for the workplace in the factory system. Well, they're not wrong. Thomas, uh, the monster John Dewey uh, at Harvard in the mid 40s uh, wrote an essay called Challenge to Liberal Thought, where he, just, where he talks about how most people should not receive a liberal arts education, but they should get training for work. Um, because he sees people, he doesn't say this, these aren't his words, but I believe that Dewey saw them as economic units and did not, because he's a communist, basically. Um, actually, communists and hardcore capitalists see people as economic units and some stomachs with legs. They share that. <laughs> they share that. They don't, know, they don't know what makes people happy or what makes people best. They don't, unlike Conan, they don't know what's best in life. Yeah. Uh, Besides uh, crushing their enemy. Yeah. So they got Dewey, that part right, the crushing your enemy part. Probably. But they got that part. Uh, so Dewey, Dewey's like, you know, these people, they just need training for work. But it started with training for war. And by the Great Depression, the, the progressives, like Dewey, 
uh, had gotten full grip on the on the schooling system, and at, at that point, they were not interested in teaching um, the liberal arts. You know, liberal has liberal as in liberal arts has the, shares a root with liberty. You know, it's the education that befits so someone who would be free. Yeah, and they weren't interested in it. I don't think that Dewey saw it as the equipment for uh, someone who would be free. Uh, he's an American pragmatist. And he didn't think that liberal arts education was pragmatic and that a more technical, a more technical training, uh, I would say that training is where you teach processes to people as opposed to an education, which is, um, you know, to, to teach them how to learn and how to create entirely new knowledge from nothing or from precursor material. So he was much more interested in training which, you know, maybe, you know, I'll try to be his friend here for a minute. Maybe it's not a bad idea in 1945. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's not a bad idea. But here we are in 2020 and uh, everything's in upheaval. Uh, the problems with the half-life of knowledge I described earlier here. You know, how do you train an 18-year-old for something they're going to do when they're 25 at this point? That's seven years. How different is 2020 from 2013? Yeah. Uh, it, it's, it's a disaster. But, but uh, there was a conscious decision by leadership in the uh, Department of Education, Dewey at Harvard, and, and other places to, to not give kids in public schools a uh, liberal arts education. And in fact... Um, I think there's been a, a smear campaign against it. It's a, it's a basket weaving degree. It's a do nothing. How are you going to get a job with that? Et cetera. You know, yeah. it's been discredited. And, uh, you know, maybe a liberal arts degree wouldn't have gotten you a job at GM in 1961 when it was at its heyday. Maybe it wouldn't, maybe they were right at that point. But at this point, uh, but at this point, you know, how's uh, uh, a business communications degree going to get you a job anywhere either? You know, yeah, um, it, it, it is. It's it's sad to see that it went that way, but it's also it's become so malicious. You know, for um, for the past let's say five years or so, there's been a, an uptick in attention paid to how off the rails academia has gotten. Um, everybody knows the whole Jordan Peterson story, or anyone listening to this knows about that. Um, and there was this attempt to say like, oh, well, that's just, come on. These are just a few departments in these schools and now it's the world. And that's where that was born. I mean, so much of what you see going on right now um, in terms of uh, making the whole world about dividing people up into little identity categories. And that's the only thing that matters. And the, you know, my whole, my whole first episode of the show was um, it was basically about talking about these these classical ideas and how it's so perilous to start looking at them in terms of, you know, only things that were, uh, that were thought of by my direct racial ancestors are what matters. Um, you know, and we can throw everything out as colonizer knowledge. That's not, that's not that. Um, and, and that, you know, who cares about the enlightenment, who cares about the scientific method. Um, and, you know, one of the examples I use, I, I opened with some quotes from Aristotle and Caesar um, you know, talking about these, these Northern European Celts, these barbarians and how they were drunkards and they were this and that. 
And I brought it back around to saying, you know, that's, that's my family they're talking about. You know, if you want to keep winding back the family tree, my family weren't the ones who built the Parthenon. You know, my family didn't settle along the Tiber, um, you know, in terms of my DNA, but that's not what matters. This, this Western culture that has its roots in, in these civilizations, that's, it matters that I make that my culture. Um, that's what I live in. And that's, that's the culture that it belongs to me because I say so, because I want to learn about it, not because of who my ancestors are. And to reject that is idiotic, you know, and it doesn't matter where your family comes from. Um, but we're being told that you should now by people with fancy degrees. <sighs> you just keep trying to make me mad, man. <laughs> this is why I had you on because I know, I know you have thoughts about this and, uh, and this is also kind of a hobby horse of mine, but I, I know you have a, uh, you'll find a sympathetic ear in a lot of the Bitcoin community. Yeah. We, we, we had online great books. Uh, we just, we don't, we don't allow uh, identity politics there. Yeah. Um, because we just, we just believe that this stuff, these books, these ideas, uh, all they require is that people believe that there's a th such a thing as a as an absolute truth? Now, sometimes you'll hear people talk about capital T truth, and you're dealing with some sort of a, a fundamentalist or a fundamentalist Christian view, and it's really a proxy for gospel or you know the Bible or something like that. And I'm not I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about that. Like if you say if a prog if a progressive or not a progressive if a postmodern person says to you, "Hey, there's no such thing as truth," that's a truth claim. Yeah, there's an irony there. Yeah, there's an irony there, and it's one of the first. It's one of the first and easiest mistakes that you know that that Aristotle will point out to you when he starts talking about uh, talking in the in the metaphysics and so on that sort of an error there clearly is truth you know if if when i speak to you my words convey any meaning to you whatsoever clearly truth will map onto reality in some way if i tell you there is no such thing as truth that's a truth claim truth clearly maps on to the way we communicate with each other the fact that you and i can uh take a you can take a brick and I can take a brick and I can tell you to put yours on top of mine and you put it on top of mine. It's just a, a sh it's just a proof that it's there. Yeah. So we, we just say the only thing we require at online great books is that people accept that there is such a thing as truth and they're interested in finding out what that is, or at least getting closer to it. Cause we don't think that there takes some sort of a special uh, recipe of two Asian guys, a gay chick, a black woman, and, you know, there's no like special recipe of identities required to get at uh, doing good work and pursuing things that are good and beautiful and true. I just, I, I, well, I do understand why it all has happened, but I'm, I'm not interested in it. It, it makes me ill, in fact. Um, well, yes. Yeah. yeah. It, it's it's really coming home to roost um right now and i you know portland i keep bringing up because i live near there is such an example of it where there's just something that's so it's tragic um seeing people think that this is what's you know this is what's meaningful to them is is this and to wear this tattoo saying i'm you know, this is who I like to sleep with and this is my color and that's what I am and that's all that I am. 
Um, hey, but here's the thing though, man. That's all that a lot of them are. Yeah, because they choose it. Well, they haven't done anything else. Yeah. Yeah. But they've also, you know, some of them, I shouldn't say I don't blame because, you know, the internet's out there. You can see whatever you want. But, um, you know, if you go to Portland State or Evergreen or whatever, you're being told to think that way. And you're, you're getting brownie points for, for being that way. And it's like you've been fed this diet of, um, of this kind of thing. And, I, you know, I, there's part of me that mocks that. And there's part of me that thinks you get more flies with honey where I want to say to them, like, come check out this. You know, you're welcome here. Um, no, but I, I don't know. They're welcome, but they're not equipped. You know, yeah. if they don't think there's any such thing as truth, what are you going to do? Mm-hmm. You know, how do we have a, if, if, if you're out sitting over there and you don't think there's any such thing as truth, what are you and I going to ultimately talk about? Yeah. No, you're going to talk about power games and, it's a and who. Because okay. there's nothing you can talk about th- with those people. You're yeah. unreachable at that point. Yeah. It, it all just becomes about, um, you know, the grievance hierarchy. And then you get to talk about who gets to talk except nobody really has anything to say. You've worked out who in the hierarchy gets to talk and tell others they can't talk, but, but nobody has anything to say. So it, yep. So it it's is, very important for us to have our own channels, to have our own outlets. So if people can't tell us we can't talk. Yeah. And hopefully those things will remain open. Um, and they know, won't. Yeah. There there's, there'll be alternatives, but uh, whether they come online in time to uh, fully take the place is, uh, you know, it's interesting. The, uh, the hack that Twitter had a couple hey, weeks bro, ago. Build, build your own bro. Yeah. <laughs> well, there, there are some open source things, but they, I, I've played around with some of them, but they're, they're not there yet. And plus you have this network effect, um, you know, where if you're the only one there shouting into the void, you know, it's, it's not the same thing as community. So I, I think we do need to front run some of that um the the twitter hack the other day uh, or two weeks ago showed uh you know they do have a control panel and they are shadow banning people and they they do have the ability to um to direct the dialogue or to try to hide voices that coincidentally seem to always uh be a certain way that they don't like it doesn't seem like this falls across the board it seems like it's very very targeted um so i'm going to keep learning um you introduced me to the concept of what do you call it the infinistack or the infinipile <laughs> yeah i don't know the infinite infinity stack of books to be yeah. read yeah it's miserable yeah i'm looking around my my home office right now it's it's insane i mean on top of the writing or the reading that i have for you guys the amount of stuff that i've got going here it's it's just ridiculous um as a bitcoiner i'm supposed to read my murray rothbard i've got you know three thousand pages of that laying around that i gotta get through um you know i have a uh, i have an infant son and because of some of the things that are going on right now, you know, we've talked about, and these are things I've, I've always been interested in this stuff in history and philosophy, not always really my, my wife's topic. She's a physician. She's, she's more of a scientist, but we're starting to think about, well, what's going to be available when he's older to learn, you know, what, what books will be banned. I can tell you, I sure as hell bought a copy of Huck Finn last month when this stuff started, cause I didn't have one. And, I'm worried about how long is that going to be available? Um, when are they going to decide you can't have that? And I'm getting books on the revolution, you know, books on the founding fathers. I want, you know, I don't know if how much of that will 
will be truly unavailable, but I can see certain things where, well, you know, Amazon has been publicly shamed into not, uh, not publishing uh, this biography of Washington because he owned slaves or something like that. Uh, so I'm building, uh, I'm building my, my infinite pile that way too. And it's good because it's stuff that um, we need to, as adults, we need to relearn too, I think. Yep. And buy them in hard copy. I know yeah. all you Bitcoin people are all about the electronic and the, the distributed networks and so on. But listen, you got to buy them in hard copy. Oh, no, no, no. That you, so Bitcoin. Yeah. But uh, there, there's definitely an understanding of if you're on, if you're just on the cloud, you're on somebody else's computer, if that's all you've got. Um, the only thing immutable is Bitcoin's ledger and anything else they can mess with. Um, so uh, yeah, you get your books, uh, you get your books on old fashioned paper and they'll be around when you need them in a hundred years or 200 years. Yeah. There was an, there was a book uh, really, really a, yeah, a book, uh, man and techniques by Oswald Spinkler. Mm-hmm. I read this summer. I was like, man, it's a good book. Interesting. And uh, some of your, some of your friends here probably have heard of Spengler. He wrote The Decline of the West mm-hmm. and uh, he ain't popular. And um, I was going to send an audio edition of it to a friend of mine and I couldn't find one because he's, he's persona non grata, man. Um, Guy Swan, if you're listening, there's yeah. another book for you to narrate. Yeah, well, I already did it. <laughs> so oh, you got it, okay. Yeah, in in the spirit of what we're talking about here, preserving some of these things that are fringy or might eventually get booted, uh, I recorded an audio book of it, and it's at onlinegreatbooks.com dot com in the sh- in the shop there, and and, uh, and I have we have plans to do uh, quite a bit more of that stuff. That was just sort of a little pilot program, and we're gonna, we're going to do more of it because uh, you know we I definitely believe in the great books method. I believe in the Socratic seminar. That questioning that you get from the from the host teaches you to question yourself and your own ideas and makes you a better thinker. I truly believe in that. But I also think that part of what we are doing is a, we have a preservation uh, function at online great books too. Uh, to keep the, keep the big ideas alive. And um, yeah, we're going to, I'm going to see when I, if I can expand on that when we, when, when we can. Uh, you know, what, what you're doing is um, you know, I don't even know if when I first signed up for it, if I appreciate it, but this is legacy building stuff. I mean, what you're doing right now is going to affect a lot of lives and have an impact that's going to be around for a long, long time. Um, you know, Thank you. Hope people so. and their kids and their grandkids will be exposed to this stuff who would not otherwise have, for yeah. sure. Um, if you want to shill on Great Books uh, one more time before we, uh, before we get to an end, or if you have anything else you'd like to talk about, um, I know you open in cohorts. You're, you're not always taking, uh, taking new registrations for it, but do you want to yeah. uh, drop any dates on that? Sure. Uh, online great books enrollment is going to, it'll be open on uh, the 31st. We'll be able for, uh, July 31st. We'll be open for seven days. You can go to online and click on join and uh, join up and uh, we'll send you uh, the online great books handbook and how to read a book, do a seminar on that one. In your first month, your second month, we'll kick off uh, Homer's Iliad. And uh, before, so we, we start with how to read a book and then you'll move into the Iliad. And then week two of the Iliad, you can go to our, our close reading sessions. So we have Mark Swick who works with us, who has been a, 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 great, a great books uh, seminar host, a facilitator for like 25 years. 
um, demonstrates and, and shows people how to do close reading of difficult material. Because again, we want to help people read that difficult stuff. And, uh, and then we read the Odyssey and then we read Aeschylus and so on. And once you get in the program, we got all kinds of stuff there that we typically don't even advertise outside. Uh, you can join, uh, you can join our sessions on Euclid. We have a session, uh, we have a, a, a eight week program on writing called Socratic scribblings where we study, um, Aristotle's rhetoric. There you go. Rhetoric, Aristotle's poetics, uh, some of the tropes that Shakespeare used and so on, uh, to help people become better writers. Again, because we want to push this rhetoric piece, right? Where you learn to write and speak convincingly. Uh, it's the, kind of, not to, sorry, I'm going to interrupt, but yeah, go ahead, man. it really, I think about this so much, I, especially with what's going on in the world, as I keep bringing up, I see some argumentation so much these days. It's like, that's not an argument. That's not a constructed argument. Did you never learn how to put together an argument? That's what St. Ephon of Molyneux says. You know, Stefan <laughs> Molyneux. Yeah. I, I, uh, I don't know him that well, but I'm aware of him. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So we, we, we really work, uh, really work hard uh, to get people, to get people going with that. So enrollment will be open July 31st. Uh, and then the next one will open. Um, the next one opens when, well, let me look here. The next one will open um, October 12th through the 18th. So you can be looking for that. And when that's not open, you can join one of our gateway sessions. We'll do a free seminar that you can go and uh, attend. We've got one by Ayn Rand. Uh, when, when those are open, those are open when regular enrollment's not. We do these freebies to help people kind of get acclimatized to what we do. Uh, we, we got one over Ayn Rand's, the Copra Chico's. We got one over some C.S. Lewis stuff. That's uh, speaking of education. That's a great essay. That Rand one. Copra Chico's. Yeah. Yeah. It is. Uh, one on Walker Percy's Loss of the Creature, also about education. Uh, one, one on some C.S. Lewis, uh, and then another one on the artist's way, which is about the creative process. And uh, so if you're ever interested in seeing what we do, go to onlinegreatbooks.com and have a look at those things. Of course, we've got the podcast comes out every Thursday at 10.30 a.m. Central Time. Go listen to Carl and I talk about books and uh, get mad and Tell stories in the past. <laughs> you guys introduced me to uh to the Jeeves series and I gotta yeah. say I, I was not expecting it to be as funny as it was. So uh, much fun. You think, well, this is written a hundred years ago, their sense of humor is different. No, stuff is stuff is funny when it's funny. It was I like that a lot. Um I also it had not clicked in my head. Um you ever watched the cartoon Archer? Yeah. Yeah, so his his uh manservant is named Woodhouse. And yep. uh, I never got the reference until then, but yeah, the Jeep series was great. Um, so you're, you're always welcome on uh, Fridays at uh, 6 p.m. Pacific time. Uh, we do Dirtbag Friday. It's a video, uh, it's a Zoom meetup, um, partially inspired by my experience with you guys actually at Online Great Books. But we've been doing that since probably February, probably about lockdown time. Um, but it is a, uh, it's, it's a discussion theoretically about Bitcoin, but it ends up being about everything in the world. Um, it's right. kind of right up your alley. Um, some of the stuff we talked today actually will appear in there on a regular basis, um, but you're welcome to that anytime. Um, I strongly recommend anyone listening to this to check out Online Great Books. It is great. It's difficult. It is hard. Um, it's it beneficial to your hard. brain in the same way that doing deadlifts is beneficial to your body. Um, it's It can suck in the moment, but uh, but afterwards you're really glad that you did it. So it's, it's great. 
So yeah, you might, you might go check out the online great books podcast, our episode 81, where we talk about the case for digital currency. We talk, we talk about the white paper in there and uh, we, we recorded one today where I shit on libertarians for I don't know, an hour. <laughs> uh, uh, we did it on uh, Hilaire Belloc's book, uh, Arrest, The Restoration of Property. Mm. Uh, I used to be uh, more libertarian than Milton Friedman. And um, I ain't no more. And uh, if y'all you, get you will find some kindred spirits in Bitcoin as well. I, I would say there's, there are some of us who are questioning in terms of economics maybe um whether free trade with a dictatorship is really free yeah it doesn't work there's no such thing there's really no such thing yeah so if if you're somebody that's in i was going to say teetering (laughs) on the edge of falling off of libertarianism uh that belloc belloc essay is uh is, is very interesting um you know the libertarians fundamentally do not understand what the game is um, because they're not willing to use government power to move their agenda forward. And there's really no other way to do it. I mean, Marx, Marx and Trotsky were right. You know, political action basically boils down to the use of violence or the willingness to use it. And they're just not willing to do it. And so they're just ineffective and they just end up going for, for crazy people and spinning their wheels and just dreaming. And, um, we had to move into some sort of realm of action and um, they're just not equipped to do it. They're just not equipped to act. You know, uh, political action for a libertarian means leaving everyone alone. Well, that's, <laughs> that's not going to get our, that get the, the freedom agenda farther forward. And, yeah. Uh, I think I, they're, Belloc makes this distributist argument for how to use government power to perhaps make people more economically free. I need yeah, to get you on here with uh, Jeff Vandrew, who's a is a Bitcoiner, who has similar views to your own on that on that topic. I have some misgivings about it, but we'll save that for uh, for a different episode. Um, mine are mainly along the lines of once you forge that sword, how do you prevent your your enemy from picking it up and killing you with it? Well, here's the deal: they've already got it, so now what are you going to do? Yeah, I mean that's the argument they always say. That's the argument we always have. But listen, if you don't have one you're just going to get your ass kicked and we just keep getting our ass kicked. So mm. worrying about what might happen after we win <laughs> is just, it's just, I think, I think we like moral courage when we do that. Yeah. Let's win and then find a way to keep it. But instead of getting our ass kicked constantly and trying to be dignified in it. Yeah. Do not get your ass kicked with dignity is the, uh, no. Do not go quiet into that good night. Or what's the uh, what's the quote? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, right. we don't want to stoop to their level. Yeah. <laughs> I'll stoop as far as necessary to win. I'm fine with that. Scott Emberg, thank you so much for coming on. Um, I got to get you back. There's definitely some people that you would have a lot of fun talking to. Um, I'll put you in touch with some of them uh, on the uh, on Messenger when uh, when we're off. But uh, thank you very much again. I recommend everybody check out Scott's online great books and uh, listen to his podcast. He is a Bitcoiner. I didn't even know that until recently. But uh, oh, I'm going to yeah. need your help, man. Yeah. So at online, at, these listeners can help maybe. At online great books, um, we run a subscription service. You know, we sell the audio book like, you know, it's a one-off thing. You know, we do that through Shopify. You'll see that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the rest of the stuff is a subscription. We get, we'll, we'll, you know, charge our client once a month and we ship them a book. And we run their seminar and provide them some other, other tools and things. And we would like very much to, uh, to charge 
with Bitcoin. And there are certainly plugins for WordPress or plugins for Shopify to do that, but not to automate the subscription. Okay, so there's probably, uh, you're probably going to want something from BTC Pay Server. Um, anyone listening who, uh, who knows that a lot better than me, do you have a Twitter handle? I don't know if you, you don't really operate Twitter. too much on Twitter, huh? No, they're our enemy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, contact me and I'll, I'll put you in touch with Scott. Uh, but there, there is, it's an open source system called BTC Pay Server. Um, so you don't run into the trouble of people trying to cancel you because it isn't controlled by anyone. It's open source. Um, there are different implementations of it that can do different things. Uh, as far as automated subscription, I'm not sure just because Bitcoin is a, it's a push system, not a pull, but there's got to be some, I think there's sort of a Patreon equivalent with, uh, with an implementation yeah. of BTC pay server. So there've got to be people who've thought of that. Um, I'll, uh, I'll reach out to some people who can probably help you with that. Yeah, well, I, I'm very interested to be able to do that. And we, and we, and we have the ability to do it for a onesie, twosie things, like a t-shirt in the store or a book. Uh, mm. But we need to, be able to do that for our main offering, which is the most important thing. Because, um, you know, when these colleges start really crumbling, half of them are going to be gone by 2023. Oh, That's yeah. I, I think a lot of the lower tier ones are screwed because there's no reason for them to exist. And uh, 10 years from now, there'll be 15% of what's here now, 20% of what's here yeah. now, I think. And I think when that happens, we may start catching some heat. Mm-hmm. So uh, we need to we need to be able to do we need to be able to we need to be able to take care of everything we need to take care of by ourselves because yeah. that's what good people do. Yeah, agree. Hey, well, thanks for thanks for visiting uh, me. Th- thank you so much. Hopefully, we will talk again soon, and I uh, I'll have some people that'll uh, that'll make you laugh on with you. Excellent. Well, thanks, and uh, let me know if there's anything I did help. Great. Thanks a lot. Bye. Hope everyone liked that. Scott is a fascinating character. He comes at things from a little bit of a different angle, but there are a lot of commonalities with his thoughts and what you see kicking around in the Bitcoin world. Uh, but I highly recommend checking out online great books. It's worth it. It's very difficult reading, but just like lifting heavy weights is hard, doing heavy reading is hard as well, but it's worth it. The intellectual foundations of everything we do, whether you're in humanities or sciences, goes back to these foundational texts. And it is a fantastic tool for sharpening your mind. Their discussion forums that they do once a month are also really great. You're put in a group with probably about 10 other people or so. And as you go through this journey of reading the different texts, you meet with them once a month on a video chat. Um, There is a... uh, a guide there to help ask useful questions and, and steer the discussion in productive ways. It's really, really good. Definitely check it out. So that's episode two. Hope everybody liked it. As always, you can give me feedback on Twitter and I'll see you soon. <laughs>